Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. I'm really excited to share a conversation with you today with Daniel Margocci about a book that he helped produce called The Fabrica of Andreas Vesalius, A Worldwide Descriptive Census, Ownership, and Annotations of the 1543 and 1555 Editions. This came out, this is a long title, right? It came out with Brill in 2018, and the title gives you a sense of how capacious this volume is. It's a really large volume. It is beautiful. It's gorgeously illustrated, and it is chock full of all kinds of useful, crucial, fascinating stuff about two major editions and hundreds of copies of those editions of one of the seminal texts for a lot of us who are interested in science studies, history of science and medicine, history of the book, history of anatomy and the body and conceptions and illustrations of bodies and many, many other related fields. What the book does is it is kind of split into two major parts. The first part is an introduction that takes us through a lot of what you'll hear us talking about in the course of the interview that you're about to listen to. So this is largely about a kind of introduction to the historiography, I mean, really briefly, right, the historiography of the text, but also insights into the reception history of the text that come from really detailed, painstaking work with um, existing copies. So annotations, marginalia, bindings, in some cases, images of bugs and information about bugs that are kept and preserved in some of these copies. So it's a really detailed critical analysis. It's also as well as being detailed and useful, fascinating. And you'll hear us talk about some of that material in the conversation to come. There's just really, really cool stuff that comes out of the kinds of analyses that they did. And you'll hear about that. But what's also included in the book is a very detailed kind of archive of characteristics of the copies of the texts that they talk about in the first part of the book in a more um, kind of overview, right, critical analytic sort of a way. So the book's an archive as well as an analysis. And it's gorgeous. You'll hear us talk about some of the kind of hand-colored, almost Crayola-ish technicolor images. You'll hear us talking about censorship of the text. You'll hear us talking about um, interest in genitalia. There's a lot of cool stuff to come. And with that, I will let you get to it. And just thank you so much for being part of this conversation by listening, for your support of the channel. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation because um, I definitely did. Okay, here we go. I'm here today to talk with Daniel Margocci about his new book, The Fabrica of Andreas Vesalius. Welcome back to the New Books and STS podcast, Daniel, and thanks so much both for helping to produce a really beautiful and I think really magisterial book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. So we've actually had an opportunity to talk before for the podcast, and this was about your previous book, Commercial Visions, Science, Trade, and Visual Culture in the Dutch Golden Age, which was also an amazing book. So I'll just do a shout out um, about that book for listeners. So let's, instead of talking about the traditional what brought you to the field, because listeners can consult that podcast for that information, let's instead talk about how you came to this particular 
project. So Danielle, can you talk a little bit about what brought you from commercial visions to the Vesalius as an object of study? Right, absolutely. So uh, let me uh, preface everything by saying that this is a co-authored book uh, with two other uh, colleagues, Mark Shamosh and Stephen Joffe. So probably they would have slightly different versions of how they got to the book. I basically got to this uh, because in commercial visions already, I was quite much interested in the history of the book as a discipline and especially on how books were published and printed and produced in the 18th century. And then roughly around the time when that book was published, I got an inquiry through the New York Academy of Medicine uh, from Stephen Joffe, my co-author, whom I hadn't known beforehand. And he basically got in touch with me and said that he had a really exciting project. Uh, he really wanted to know how many copies of Vesalius's Fabrica survive today, where they are, and what when we keep, can we learn about Vesalius and his magisterial and passive anatomy. And uh, I hesitated a little bit originally about getting into this project, I talked to a friend uh, from uh, graduate school and actually from daycare uh, at age three, and we discussed that uh, this would be a project that we would be very much interested in. Uh, so we, after around a month, we said, okay, let's do it together, the three of us, and we embarked on the project. And given that Vesalius is originally from the Low Countries, uh, and given that it's a book in the history, you know, about the history of the book, I was, let's do it. Let's see now, not so much how the book was printed and published, because there isn't so much information available how this book was printed and published. Let's focus instead on who owned this book, who read it, what annotations they left in their copies, and how we can trace the reception of a spectacular volume uh, and foundation work of medicine. Uh, yeah, that's the story. Wonderful. And as we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, in the podcast to come, um, in the moments to come, one of the really exciting things that the book shows is how much you can do by tracing the material history and also the annotations and really reading the annotations critically and creatively and productively to get at all kinds of things about the reception history of the book. So that's, uh, I think, a really exciting contribution that the book makes. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that at much more length. So let me set the stage a little bit for just very briefly for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to take a look at the book. So in the words of the book, and this is a quote, it is the aim of this census to reveal the complex reading history of the Fabrica across 475 years, tracing how owners reacted to its complex arguments and fascinating images, and to show how the Fabrica's close ties to political and economic power inflected the way it was studied. Okay, so that's the stated aim, and I think it's put very articulately, so I just wanted to give it in those words. Now, the census reconstructs a previously unknown segment of the reception history of the Fabrica by surveying all the surviving copies of the 1543 and 1555 editions of Basel that Vesalius himself supervised. Um, so let's kind of start there a little bit, Daniel. Why those two particular 
editions, right? Why the 1543 and 1555 edition? Um, again, for listeners who might not be familiar with the text. Right. Okay. Absolutely. So oh. there are good pragmatic and more theoretically oriented reasons. So the Fabrica is printed for the first time in 1543. It is published in the very first days of August. And it is a folio volume uh, of over 600 pages of text, over 220 woodcuts. It's a big textbook that is expensive. And basically, uh, then a lot of other editions come out uh, afterwards, just as we know in the early modern period, reprinting is quite frequent. Uh, the 1555 edition is the only other edition that is of the same size. In fact, it has 150 pages of more text, yeah? uh, but it is still a large folio. It is supervised by Vesalius again, and it is printed by the same publisher. So what we have here is two editions that are you know, within limits, more or less identical and are aimed at the same audience, rich people who can afford to spend roughly a month worth of dinners uh, on this book. Uh, I think Sachiko Kusukawa calculated that, you know, the price of the Fabrica is the equivalent of 28 fish dinners in contemporary Basel. Uh, so there are other editions. There is a pirated edition of 1552 uh, that uh, comes out with basically no illustrations. There is a smaller edition from 1568. There are abbreviations, translations, etc., etc. But our aim was really to figure out uh, what this original material object uh, printed in multiple copies uh, changes in medicine, how people react to it. Because obviously, if you print a different in a different format, a smaller version, the reaction will be different. And our question was really not to focus on how the message of the Fabrica changes as it is printed in a variety of formats, but rather, is there anything that stays the same as long as the format is the same? Right. Now, one of the really interesting points that you make in the introduction, um, I, I think is really important for any of us who are doing history of the book, or really for any of us who might not be working on or committed personally to contributing to the literature on the book as material object, right? But who might be interested in questions of not just what is an author, but what is a book, right? These are also really interesting theoretical questions about identity and individuality and what it is we're studying when we're studying something, right? What makes something into itself? Um, this is all a complex way of leading into the very practical question of deciding when you had a copy of the Fabrica in hand or when you had access to it, how do you know that it counts as a copy, right? So in other words, what? how did you decide what counted as a copy of one of these 1543 or 1555 editions? Because some of them were like bound with other things, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about that process for you personally of deciding when something counted as a copy of the Fabrica that you were going to in include in the census? Right, so there are two ways of answering to that question. The first one is, is this a real original edition or is this a fake 
printed in the late 20th century to fool owners and researchers of the census. And because this is such a big book, it is not really easy to fake it, right? If it's a small book like the famous case of uh, Galileo Sideronuncius, it is relatively easy to forge it because it's a couple of pages. You know, this is a really big book. We haven't encountered complete outright forgeries. Yeah. Uh, the other question is, however, what is a copy in the sense that, you know, when do we say this is a 1543 edition, uh, is more complex, right? What do you do when all you have is the frontispiece, the illustration of the with the title page that survives of a book? Because in the 19th century, someone cut it out, framed it, and exhibited it on their walls. Uh, we decided that that was not a copy on no particular theoretical considerations, but because it would have made our job much uh, more difficult. Is, let's say, 100 pages of the book cut out once and now preserved in the library, there is such a copy in San Francisco. Does that count as a fabrica? We said, okay, if it's already more than 100 pages, then yeah, let's count it as a copy of the Fabrica and let's talk about it because, you know, may, there may be interesting things to say about it. And then again, what do you do when sometimes in the 19th or 20th centuries, a book dealer had a slightly damaged copy of the Fabrica, in fact, two damaged copies of the Fabrica, and instead of selling two damaged copies for, uh, you know, peanuts, decided to create one complete copy from those two fragmented copies so that now we have a hybrid copy where half of the pages is from one edition, half of the pages from the another edition. Does that count as one or two fabricas? And in such cases, we said, okay, let's count it as two fabricas because originally those were two separate copies. Yeah. I mean, my favorite example is at Princeton, uh, where you know it is one book, but one of the illustrations is from a different edition, and you can notice this because. There is a woodworm, a bookworm, very nicely going through the book, then stopping digging a hole at that illustration, kind of climbing up through the book, and then climbing back after that illustration and going through the rest of the book. And then we obviously realize that it's not the bookworm avoiding that particular page, but rather that particular page was inserted into the book after the bookworm had done its job. So then again, this is one way of saying, okay, you know, this is one copy, but some of the pages are from a different copy that no longer exists. So these are the issues, you know, like what counts as a book? You know, if it is damaged, how much damage needs to be done to the book until you say this is no longer a proper copy? So we could easily talk just about that, right, for the next hour. I mean, it's so fascinating. And I love uh, the bookworm. I love the story about the bookworm. But let's talk a little bit about the kind of practicalities in another sense of doing this research, right? How did you locate these copies? Um, and maybe another way of putting this is what were some for you of the most important tools that you used to do this kind of census work and to just find out what was out there and where it was? Right. So, right. So basically the question is, how do you know how many copies of this book survive and where they are? And back a couple of decades ago, you basically 
have a couple of guesses which libraries may own a copy. And then you contact those uh, libraries and ask them, according to your catalogs, do you have a copy? Obviously, the bias would be towards those libraries that you believe to have such a copy. Uh, previous researchers tend to have a belief that it's primarily Western European and American major libraries that have a copy. Uh, and then uh, you need to get in touch with private owners and you consult book dealers and try to pry up information from them who they sold copies to. Things have changed and evolved because we have the internet and frankly, the honest answer is you find most copies by doing Google search. Uh, it is uh, particularly the case with the Fabrica. Uh, obviously, you start with WorldCat. You start with a variety of union catalogs that list uh, the holdings of a nation's libraries. Uh, you use all sorts of uh, search engines for that but those will recover only maybe half of what we have found. Uh, the other half, Google search helps with because the Fabrica is a famous book. Therefore, every library, even those without an online catalog, will boast about it on their website. And usually it's on a page called Our Treasures. So as long as you put into Google search Vesalius Fabrica Treasure, in a variety of languages, you will find the web pages of books saying, our oh, treasures, we have a Copernicus, we have a Newton, we have a Vesalius. Yeah? And this doesn't work with lesser known books, less famous books, less expensive books, which is a shame because no one boasts about having a little known 17th century tract that is still quite important for history, but they boast about this. And then, you know, once you've done that uh, Google search, you do a bit of Facebook search, you send out letters to mailing lists, you ask friends, and when it comes to private owners, you still go to the book dealers and ask them, could you please tell me who did you, you sold this book to? And they will either forward your email or not. Many of the book dealers were extremely helpful. So we were able to get in touch with some private owners, but not all of them. And so I gather from a little bit of e-conversation that we had before this, that it's not the case that Fabricas now are only in a kind of major institutional libraries, right? Or even the, the hands of private owners that are particularly wealthy. It, you had mentioned there's some really interesting, unusual places where Fabricas are today. So can you talk a little bit about that? Where do you find them today that perhaps might be surprising for listeners? Right. So first of all, not all of them are in Europe. Uh, we were unable uh, probably to document every copy surviving outside uh, Europe and America. Uh, many uh, countries uh, with a huge history of medicine where a fabrica may have ended up simply do not have uh, currently uh, online information about their library holdings and we were unable to go and visit every country in the world to do that. So there is that bias. Nonetheless, we were able to find that there is a copy in Rio de Janeiro. We found it online. Uh, we found some copies in Mexico because Japan has been a major uh, hub for rare book collecting in the past 30 decades. We found a good number of copies there. 
And then uh, within Europe and in America, we found that many lesser known libraries have a copy. So for instance, in Germany, several high schools have a copy. Uh, I visited personally one such high school in Steinfurt in Germany, not very far from the Dutch border, where you go into a 1960s building uh, filled with high school students running around. Uh, you're welcomed by uh, the local amazing librarian who was extremely helpful. And he brings you in to the library of the high school 400 years ago. And literally in that building from the 1960s, they have a climate-controlled room uh, where all the books from the foundations of the high school, because it was founded 400 years ago, it just became transformed and moved locations. You see the complete library of what that high school had back then. Medieval manuscripts, uh, legal tractates, philosophical treatises, and one copy of the Fabrica with a couple of cryptic notes about the radius bone. And yeah. No, I'm just laughing. Yeah. It's, it's just a fascinating story. I'm sorry, go on. Yeah. yeah, and again, you go into monasteries and it turns out that the Fabrica was in monasteries and it still is there. There is, again, uh, in Poland, a 1950s, 60s uh, concrete building of a monastery uh, in Olsztyn, uh, that looks extremely modernist, but they have an amazing prayer book collection uh, going back uh, through centuries, and they have two copies of the Fabrica. One of them, uh, you know, had been there for quite a while. The other one uh, walked over the border after 1945, when the library of Königsberg was destroyed, and this copy ended up uh, on the Polish side of the border a couple of years later. So, so these are the places where you find them, little time libraries in Italy, in France. You just need to have a car and uh, drive around and you just find them everywhere. You know you need to write a novel now that's a fictionalized account of some amazing like rare book sleuth who's like following copies of the Fabrica all over and stumbles upon some nefarious business and like cool Vesalius related stuff happens, right? So just when you make your cabillions of dollars on this amazing novel, you're going to write about this. Think back to this moment and I'm going to just say, you know, it all began all right. here. You get 10% of the royalty. <laughs> So, Daniel, it's one of the really striking things already, I think, in the conversation is how important the book, or the books, really, the copies are as material objects. And we're going to talk about that at more length in the conversation to come. But importantly, I think, as has already been clear, that's not um, to the detriment of digital research methods or other ways of reading and experiencing books and their histories that are that seem just as or differently, but um, in an important way, really significant to the project. So in the introduction to the book, you talk about a number of kind of distant um, methods. I don't want to call it distant reading because that's a different kind of thing, but ways of overcoming problems with distance and access um, that were mediated in part digitally. Um, you mentioned that, the, uh, for example, the research process combined not just personal visits um, or used not just personal visits, but also relied in part on questionnaires and photographs that were sent to you from intermediaries that had access to copies that you couldn't personally go and kind of physically look at, right? 
So that's one way that a kind of technologies of distance contributed to making this book what it is. But more specifically, you also talk about a database right? That was part of your research process. And I believe there was also a website for the project. So all told, it seems that digital methods were a really important part of the work done here. So I would love it if you could talk a little bit about the ways that digital research methods, and potentially we can call this digital humanities if you want to, shaped the project. Uh, great. Yeah, I, I, I never thought about it this way, but you're absolutely right. It is a digital project. So uh, some researchers were able to see every single surviving uh, copy of a particular book. Uh, Owen Gingrich uh, definitely did this with the Copernicus census. We, because of the lack of time uh, and because we were working within a limited time frame, decided to ask the help of friends, colleagues, and librarians. So whenever we had a friend... Uh, who was going to a place that we were not going to be able to visit, we were like, can you please visit the local library with a camera and just take pictures of every single page of the book or alternatively every single page where you see the smallest underlining or note uh, written in by somebody. And many of our friends said yes to it and we are extremely thankful to them. And hopefully some of, and some of them said that they actually really enjoyed going into a rare book library and engaging with an amazing book. And then we have to say the librarians have been amazingly helpful. Uh, we sent out inquiries to hundreds of libraries and we told them, could you please read your fabric up cover to cover and tell us if there are any annotations? And the vast majority of librarians said, yes, of course, I would love to do that. They sent us images. In some cases, they digitized the whole volume uh, for us. Uh, uh, and or provided information or said, you really need to come and see this in person because this is so exciting. And we had uh, uh, a questionnaire software uh, where pe people could basically send in information, upload information, upload images, and it worked wonderfully. Then we basically need to create a da database where we could store all of this. Yeah, We have now information on over 700 copies uh, that uh, we know of. So in each case, we had to record every single owner of that book from the past and the present that we know about. We had to record what kind of binding it is. We had to figure out what kind of annotations there are in the books. And, you know, most importantly, we decided to note uh, on what pages annotations are present. So in each book, uh, you know, or at least, you know, in as many as we could and in the vast majority of cases we could, we listed every single page uh, that has an annotation or an underlining. And uh, fortunately, there are very cheap uh, database software that allow you to do this. Uh, and uh, it made our life much easier. And we could actually do some quantitative analysis of, you know, who owned this book in 1700, what percentages of those owners is a priest, a physician, or an aristocrat. We could calculate on which page there are the most annotations if you compare all the copies and things like that. And then we created a website because we know that we haven't found every single copy in the world. So the updates are constantly going on our website right now. 
uh, that complement the book. It's called VasiliusCensus.com, and uh, we provide additional information. And uh, and we welcome, you know, any listener that has a fabrica, please let us know about it unless we've been already in touch. Wonderful. And one of the things that's really striking about your description of the annotations, right? And the kinds of analysis that you and your uh, co-authors brought to bear on reading those annotations is that you're really clear in distinguishing between a kind of typical reader, right? An exemplary reader where you're taking us through one case, right? Of a reader um, who made annotations that are somehow representative of something larger. And when you are using these kind of database statistical methods to talk about averages instead. And I just mentioned this because the book is really, really helpful in part because of this specificity and because of the way you are very careful about telling us what methods contributed to what kinds of analyses. It's really useful as a model for how one might bring together digital research methods and a, a real attentiveness to the materiality of the object to create a cohesive story that couldn't be what it is without both of those components being here. So let's talk a little bit about the materiality here. The census really pays special attention to the fabrica as a material object, and this becomes crucial to the analysis. It argues that there were physical constraints that shaped how the book was read, um, so including its large size, its number of woodcuts, its elegant typesetting, and also its value, right, its price. And so this is one of the reasons, one of perhaps many reasons, why making a decision to look at copies of editions where Vesalius was actually involved in the production makes sense because one of the things that the, the census is arguing is that those decisions, that intentionality that he made as an author, in part determined the later reception history and the price history of this book, right? So intention was actually important to the, the historical study um, that the book is offering, and we'll get to that in a moment. So this also is important in contributing to some existing and outstanding historiographical debates about books and print and publishing. Early in the book, you mention that the book supports a weak version of Eisenstein's thesis in a book called The Printing Press as an Agent of Change. And you argue that, at least within the bounds of early modern Europe, the folio format, the large-scale woodcuts, the complex textual arguments of the fabrica, in the words of the book, strongly conditioned the response of readers. So, Daniel, could you talk a little bit about this um, for us in terms of what you take to be the most significant historiographical contributions that the study's making to how we understand this the kind of book print publication history? Right. So basically, uh, what we have come, uh, the authors have come uh, away from after doing our census, was a strong impression that it mattered a tremendous lot that this was an expensive book at the time with fabulous illustrations and a large format. And in a certain sense, this was the decision that Vesalius made together with the printer Johannes Operinus and probably together with the illustrator Jan Steven van Kalka uh, that this will be a luxury coffee table style book. And 
there is a lot of argument in the historiography how many different ways we can interpret a book, how the reception of the book diverges from the author's intentions, how many unintended readings of a work of literature, of a work of science, emerge throughout the centuries. And we completely agree with that. Uh, because indeed, you know, Vesalius was read in very different way throughout the centuries, and there are radically different interpretations of it. At the same time, it seemed to us that the majority, and I would even risk the large majority of readers in the 16th century and early 17th century, so the original audience of the book, was quite homogeneous. It was an international audience of the elites of European society. And uh, they were, one could argue, the members of the Republic of Letters, whatever the Republic of Letters was in the period. They were learned Latinate uh, readers. And it seemed to us that they tended to react in fairly predictable ways to the book. They were interested in certain parts in it. They read the text in a certain manner and they constantly went back to the ancient uh, medical authority, Galen, because they wanted to know what Galen says about what Vesalius is writing. So we found constant patterns, and it didn't quite matter whether it was an English physician or an Italian priest who was reading a book. There are some regional variations, and there is a huge difference between 16th century readers and 19th century and 20th century readers. But within the boundaries of early modern Europe, we were actually starting to find that, yes, you know, the shape of the book conditions how it is read because the price restricts it to one very thin slice of contemporary society. Some of those readings reflect, you know, Vesalius's intentions. People read it as Vesalius wants the book to be read. And in other cases, People read it differently from what Vesalius wanted them to do, but nonetheless, their response is a uniform misreading of the authorial intention. So that's the short answer, so to speak. That's awesome. And you've brought up a bunch of things that I was planning on and that I'd like to ask you to elaborate a little bit. Um, so this is perfect. So you talked a little bit about the significance of the book as something that had a very high price, right? Um, and you mentioned this at very various points in the census, right? It's a consistent, or the value, the consistently high value, almost, right, consistently, um, of the book is... Um, is really a theme throughout the census. You talk about, and we, we'll talk about this a little bit um, in uh, the second half of the interview, I think, you talk about the fact that the price has remained steadily high except for a dip in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and the way, as you just mentioned, that the pricing it was strongly conditioned by the material qualities of the book. Now, there were various ways that readers and owners of the book maintained that value or tried to at least make an effort to maintain that value. And that included binding it, right? And there are some really amazing images of some of these um, bindings that you provide in the census. Also for me, what was really striking, and this is kind of embarrassing because as an early modern historian that, you know, I didn't realize people did this um, given the rare books that I'm used to working with, which are usually in Chinese and Manchu, people are hand coloring their 
copies, right? Um, and there's some amazing images of this. There's one on the cover of the book that looks like almost like technicolor. It's like someone got a box of Crayola crayons and just went to town on one of these images in like a super exciting way. So Daniel, I would just love to invite you to talk a little bit um, uh, maybe about hand coloring specifically, but more generally about the importance of your ability to reproduce these images in the census and the work that the images that are in the census of the bindings of dead flies of hand coloring examples do for the argument and the larger work that the book does. Right. So absolutely. So we do have uh, a, a number of uh, wonderful images in the book of bindings and hand colorings. And, and some of those bindings, uh, fake skin bindings are the most beautiful thing, you know, one can imagine. They are elaborately blind stamped uh, with illustrations. You find images of, you know, uh, German emperors, uh, Jesus, uh, Virgin and the Child, a variety of saints in these images in these bindings and 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 they they make wonderful covers and obviously they raise the price of the volume considerably uh, in the case of you know a 1552 edition of a fabrica which we don't discuss here uh, the price of the binding is uh, exceeds the price of the actual book and nowadays it is selling for huge amounts of money simply because of its uh, extremely special binding uh, now, when you come to hand colorings, that is quite interesting. So it turns out that in early modern Europe, uh, it was possible for some books to be hand colored by the printer for the customer. It seems to us that the Fabrica wasn't hand colored in the printing shop. People actually said, okay, we want this book hand colored once they have purchased the book. And sometimes it was for decorative purposes, and they ran wild in it. There is a copy still in Basel today, which has uh, wonderful flowers on the margins, reminding you of late medieval prayer books uh, that have floral margins. Uh, there are fully hand-colored copies in Poland, in uh, the Netherlands, elsewhere, where you basically have every image very carefully colored and it looks stunningly beautiful. What is interesting is you also have readers going crazy. So sometimes indeed as if, you know, a kid was picking up a crayon and just hand coloring parts. There is one image where someone, you know, one of the famous muscle man images of the Fabrica has in the background a couple of houses and a hill. And the person picks up their crayon and they hand color three of the houses in the background and they leave the rest of the image untouched. And you wonder why on earth they were interested in hand coloring those houses. You have an image, I think, in Wrocław uh, uh, where sort of like one image in the whole book is hand colored. It turns out to be the labia of uh, the female reproductory organs that are hand colored red. And you wonder why that reader decided to pick that particular image of the genitals and why they decided to color it red. And you have a horroristic image in Italy in Fermo where uh, there is an illustration in the Fabrica showing uh, a table with all the surgical instruments you need to use for a dissection. And someone painted blood on those surgical instruments, creating an image, you know, of you know, basically sharp knives with blood on them. And again, you wonder, why did you do that exactly? 
So those red, that red labia, right? So the, um, you call this sexual coloring in the book, and this raises uh, an opportunity for us to talk about something that's really interesting in the analysis of the copies of the book that the census offers. So when you talk about the approach of the typical reader, um, but also the average reader, um, I think this is also true, there was a special attention that the census shows that you could see in the annotations and including some of this hand coloring to a particular book of the Fabrica. This is book five. And there was a special attention within that to issues of generation, issues of reproduction, issues of uh, menstrual flow, male lactation, genitalia in the book. So readers... Um, from what it seems you could tell from the annotations and the ways that they actually treated the physicality of the book, were particularly interested in this history of generation, reproduction, genitalia, lactation, menstruation. Um, Daniel, can you talk a little bit about why that was? Sort of what um, what does that help us understand about the context in which they were reading? About why that was a particular interest for readers that you saw. Right, so uh, the interest in generation and uh, the sexual organs uh, is quite complex and is quite striking. Uh, the very first copy I ever saw was a copy that I saw in Budapest, Hungary, over winter holidays, where I went into the local library and asked for the copy of the Fabrica, and I opened it, and all... Uh, the male genitalia were excised uh, from that copy. And I was like, oh my gosh, why is someone interested in the genitalia of the book? And then what, as we were doing the census, or three of us, we were realizing that basically in many copies, the readers just turn to those pages that focus on issues of generation, how babies are born, why women menstruate, and what it tells us about human anatomy. And this is not exactly surprising. Remember, this is a book that is owned primarily by male uh, physicians, later priests, and very few women own a copy of this book. Some of them inherit it. In later centuries, some of them will own it with their husbands. But as far as I can document it, the first female owner of a fabrica to purchase a copy on her own buys it in spring 2017, uh, hundreds of years after the book. So the fascination of man with female sexuality and generation has been well documented and Katie Park has a wonderful book tracing sort of like how similar issues are at hand already, you know, at the birth of anatomy, and then especially with Vesalius. And basically what our, our, we found was that, you know, this is absolutely right. The readers know very little about childbirth and the secrets of women, and they want to know more about it. And basically we, 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 we were like, no, another copy where someone underlines the word hymen, high interesting, you know, probably the most frequently underlined word in the fabrica is the word hymen. Uh, and basically, they, they wanted to know, uh, as we are doing the book, uh, 
based on you know our findings, is in many cases the male readers wanted to know uh, why women are promiscuous, how God created a body for them uh, that makes them promiscuous, but at the same time limits their engagement in adulterous sex, and they wanted to draw conclusions, uh, you know, as male readers why, frankly, they, the male elite uh, members of the society, uh, should be ruling in a patriarchal society and overseeing the activities of women and controlling uh, female sexuality. And you mention also in the book that even Vesalius himself is interested in issues of how to control women's sexual pleasure, right? And like he writes about how God did this. Um, so it's it's not just right? The, the readers, it's also the part of the way that the author created the text that speaks to or that contributes to some of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the frontispiece of this book, the very first image shows Vesalius dissecting the uterus of a female criminal. I mean, uh, that makes it quite obvious, sort of like, you know, it is, you know, an exemplary case of the male gaze, so to speak. And Vesalius makes an extremely important argument that basically women, there is a reason why women cannot control their uterine muscles, because if they could control their uterine muscles, they could close up their uterus and make sure that no semen enters there. And therefore, they would have a method of uh, uh, contraception. And Vesalius says that God created women not to be able to control their uterus so that they don't have methods of contraception, therefore they have to limit their sexuality. And Vesalius says that is a good thing. And many of the readers of the period will say, indeed, that is a good thing. So, so in a certain sense, Vesalius, insofar as came to the gender and sexual politics of the age, uh, resonated very well with that part of society that he was aiming his book at. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier, Danielle, that readers not only used the book in ways that were conditioned by decisions that Vesalius made and intentions that he had, uh, along with the publisher, along with the artist, but some readers also, based on your analysis of the you know materiality of the book and the annotations, used the book or read the book in ways that Vesalius did not anticipate, did not intend. Is there any kind of striking example of that that comes to mind for you um, that you might want to talk about? Uh, yes. So first of all, uh, one of the striking things is that Vesalius launches his book as a revolutionary volume that is supposedly completely change the history of medicine. And what it means in uh, Renaissance Europe, it means he is overwriting and erasing the ancient tradition. And Vesalius sometimes quite vehemently attacks Galen in his book. As it turns out, this didn't quite work out. Uh, Vesalius' readers uh, basically uh, heed to the good old adage, there is no such thing as bad advertising. Whenever Vesalius says Galen is wrong, they go turn to Galen, they look up their copies of Galen, they say, actually, let's see, is Galen really wrong? And what we find, and I think other authors have also found it in recent years, I think Ian McLean has recently published 
uh, work on it, is what they find is that actually Galen is interesting and is sometimes better than Vesalius. Uh, so like an extremely vicious attack on your enemies backfires and you suddenly see readers writing on the margins, no, here Vesalius is erring, Galen is right. Or in some cases they say, yes, Vesalius is right, Galen is wrong. But that doesn't mean that antiquity is wrong because Aristotle, on the other hand, is totally cool. So suddenly you see these debates emerging where Vesalius becomes one more ancient authority and you have Galen, Aristotle and Vesalius having this sort of like three-way fight amongst each other and the readers are educating, okay, two points for Aristotle, one point for Galen. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. Um, and the book also pays interesting and careful attention to other issues that come out of reading the annotations very carefully, including the ways that readers prioritize personal observation alongside book learning, um, the way that they engaged ancient um, authority, as you just mentioned, alongside Vesalius's own um, commentary. And also you talk a little bit in the book about the fact that readers actually seem slightly more interested in the text than in the illustration. So there's all kinds of really fascinating material for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to take a look at the census um, on usage of the book, on uh, reception of the book that comes out of really fascinating analyses of these annotations and marginalia and material aspects of the book. Now, what you also offer though, in the course of the census, is a kind of broad scope history of changing patterns of ownership over hundreds of years that the study encompasses. In the past 400 years, as you've talked a little bit about and as the book shows in great detail, the Fabrica has moved from wealthy private physicians, um, right? And you talked a little bit about this an initial audience of elites, um, this kind of international elite group within European society into monastic libraries in the 17th and 18th centuries, and then into the collections of public and university libraries, um, um, you know, among other things. But these are just kind of major trends that the book identifies. Now, one of the really important decisive moments in this history of ownership patterns in the book over hundreds of years is the late 18th century. Daniel, can you talk about, for listeners, um, again, who aren't familiar with this history, what happens in the late 18th century and what is the impact in ownership patterns of the book? Right. So let me uh, tell you that in a few words. Uh, remember, this book is originally owned primarily by medical professionals. No surprise that. What happens then is that in the course of the 17th and early 18th centuries, many, many such copies tend to end up in uh, the libraries of religious institutions uh, in a caricaturistic way. The male physician dies, his wife doesn't know what to do with this book, and she donates it to the local religious order so that in exchange for the book, the order will pray for his husband's soul. Uh, this is a fairly typical pattern. And then what happens in the Enlightenment is a drastic uh, uh, change. That is, many monastic orders are abolished throughout Europe. And, you know, this is well known. This is, you know, the history of secularization. 
What we tend to forget is that this means that huge amounts of libraries change ownership in this period. Basically, what you see is that millions and millions and millions of books uh, go away from monastic libraries. Just in Bavaria, I uh, remember reading somewhere, six million books change owners. So the history of the Fabrica changing ownership is a history of this you know, bigger change in library history. And what you see is that the Fabrica starts to enter public, state, and university libraries and the rare book rooms, as we know them today, are established roughly in the years around 1800, and the rare book as a concept is born. Thank you so much. Now, part of, before we move to our conclusion, um, I just want to highlight and ask you a little bit about something that you said as part of um, what you were talking about a little bit earlier. When we were talking about the special interests that readers placed on issues of reproduction and genitalia and how individual um, copies of the text had alterations to the images, right, from what the publishers had ostensibly originally produced, you mentioned that you would come across images where the male genitalia were taken away in some way. Now, in the census itself, this is part of a larger discussion of censorship of the text, which sometimes involved censorship of images of the vagina and penis. Um, It sometimes censored other sorts of things. Can you talk a little bit for listeners about um, some of what for you might be most interesting about Catholic censorship of the text and how decisive or not that was in shaping the reception history of the Fabrica? Right. So what you find really interestingly is that within Catholic Europe, uh, the Fabrica was censored to a certain degree. It was censored more so in Spain and less so in other Catholic countries. You know, it seems, so to speak, that the Monty Pythonesque Spanish Inquisition indeed shows up always. Uh, but what you find here really uh, more seriously is that there were two issues with this book. Uh, number A, the printer was a Protestant. And this was a huge issue. Operinus, as a Protestant printer, was put on the index right from its beginnings in the late 1550s. And therefore, any book published by that printer needed to be censored one way or another. And indeed, in many cases, what you find that the name of the printer is mentioned three or four times in the book, uh, those mentions are carefully blacked out uh, by a reader or by the local censor Uh, in a certain copy. And the other issue is that, you know, as we have discussed, Vesalius shows images of the genitals, and that is erotic and licentious and, uh, you know, may be used for pornographic purposes. Therefore, in many monasteries or in many uh, Catholic areas, uh, the owners need to uh, excise those images or black them out Uh, or draw something on them. There is a wonderful image in a French library where basically they put speedos on the genitals. So suddenly the male nudes of uh, the muscle men tend to wear all kinds of uh, swimming uh, trunk-like clothes. Uh, So there is that. And uh, what it really uh, makes us wonder is 
what does censorship actually achieve? Most of the copies were not really censored, even in Catholic countries, so the majority of the books isn't censored. Uh, when you cross out the name of the printer operinus, you still have access to the book. Uh, when uh, certain passages are crossed out, uh, it's only a very few sentences. There is an anecdote of a monk who has a mistress that obviously needs to go. There is only one copy of the 700 that censors that passage, blackens it out, and then there is a little hand, uh, you know, drawn on the margins by the reader saying, pay attention to this. This is censored, therefore it is exciting and interesting, so try to read it beyond the black ink. So in a certain sense, censorship, when you blacken out a part of the book, it makes you realize that this is exciting and important knowledge. So what we were wondering is that, yes, the fabrica is censored, uh, the reading is limited and controlled, but it is probably not by making the information unavailable completely, because most of the fabrica's text is available to Catholic readers as well. Censorship works in more complex, more insidious ways. First of all, we find that in Catholic Europe, more copies ended up uh, in religious institutional libraries uh, than in private hands. So basically, the church was able to limit who gets access to the book. And once you are at the monastery, you can read the book uh, because you are already trained well enough to deal with all the problematic issues that you have in it. And on the other hand, uh, or at another level, Vesalius himself was... Uh, very much aware of the fact that the Catholic Church uh, paid a close attention to what is said in the books that is are published in Europe, and sometimes he self-censored himself. So we think that this book is not censored too heavily, partly because what Vesalius says conforms to Catholic teachings, and sometimes he says, I could say more, but I'm worried about the theologians, so we clearly see that he's thinking about it, and therefore censorship doesn't work always in the most overt manners. But it's not just about blackening our text, it's about who can access the book and how the authors themselves already self-censor them. And frankly, coming from, you know, socialist Eastern Europe, you know, this is a pattern that you will find repeating centuries later in other parts of the world still. So Daniel, this has been completely fascinating and I'm actually sorry that we're already at our conclusion because there's so much more we could talk about. But for the time being, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Uh, well, I uh, would recommend that they read the book. I think uh, that, uh, you know, what we need to mention maybe is that this book contains an analysis of our findings, but we also make an attempt to describe every single copy uh, that we know of uh, in quite some detail. And there is sort of like a catalog of each surviving copy with details on the annotations, records of ownership, bindings, and physical uh, condition of the book uh, in the end. So we claim, you know, that uh, there was, you know, uh, that we found certain patterns how this book was read. 
And now we invite the readers to look through the second part of the book and say, actually, look what is really interesting, how different every single copy is, and all the general narratives that we established are actually wrong. So we look forward to you know, such responses. That's right. And so the text um, itself is not just an analysis, but it also is a kind of archive. Um, so it's, I think, an amazing resource for readers, not just because of the analysis that we talked about, but also because, as you said, of all of the analyses to come from what you've offered us in the second part of the book. Speaking of um, sort of what you might offer us in the future, Daniel, um, now that the book is out and congratulations, what else are you working on now? What can we look forward to reading or experiencing from you in the future? So uh, I have currently uh, three small projects going on. One of them is a really uh, short, but I think exciting article on how Machiavelli's Prince was read in World War II uh, and uh, how people found, surprise, surprise, that Machiavelli helped them understand what Hitler was doing. Uh, And then I have two other projects, one focusing on the curious fact that most of the early modern museums at their foundations, the princely Kunstkammers of Northern Europe, tended to be on the second floor of stables. And I want to learn a little bit more about why it is that people arrange their sort of like princely holdings in such a way that where horses and curiosities are kept are the same buildings. And uh, the last project, I really want to learn more about ships, shipbuilding, and how sort of like knowledge about shipbuilding circulated in the world in the early modern period. Uh, and really in the world going beyond uh, sort of the continent that I've been studying for a bit too long. Well, let's talk about all of those projects when they're ready. And in the meantime, thank you so much for talking with me about this book. It's amazing. And it really has been a pleasure. Thank you, Carla. It was great talking to you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks so much for joining us and come back and check us out again next time.